This is Songs of Praise. We hope this hour of musical reflection lifts your thoughts to our loving Saviour, Jesus Christ.
call you friend. That's what you are. All that I do, I share with you. I have no secrets. I have no need to keep them to myself. For I tell you.
some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me. Seventy-one, twenty-two. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, Holy One of Israel.
Just the time I feel that I've been caught in the mire of self. Just the time I feel my mind's been bought by worldly wealth. That's when the breeze begins to blow. I know the Spirit's call. And all my worldly wanderings just melt into His love. Oh, I want to know you more. Deep within my soul, I want to know you. Oh, I want to know you. To feel your heart and know your mind. Looking in your eyes stirs up within me. Cries that say, I want to know. I want to know you more. And when my daily deeds ordinarily lose life and song, my heart begins to bleed sensitivity to him is gone I've run the race but set my own pace and face a shattered soul Now the gentle arms of Jesus warm my hunger to up within me, cries that say, I want to know you, oh, I want to know you, and I would give my final breath to know you in your death and resurrection, oh, I want to know
This is Songs of Praise, music to help you appreciate our Saviour, Jesus Christ.
I feel. 
trust you are getting to know our Saviour Jesus Christ better as Songs of Praise continues.
were pilgrims on the journey of the narrow road. And those who've gone before us lined the way, cheering on the faithful, encouraging the weary, their lives a stirring testament to God's sustaining grace. Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race not only for the prize, but as those who've gone before us, let us leave to those behind us the heritage of faithfulness passed on through godly lives. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their have come and gone And our children sift through all we've left behind May the clues that they discover and the memories they uncover become the light that leads them to the road we each must Bye. Hey.
Hope you've enjoyed the program. Join us again on Songs of Praise, produced by 3ABN Australia Radio. Today, in 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading, we are continuing Banish the Night by the late missionary pilot and pastor Len Barnard, read by Clive Nash. The book is set in Papua New Guinea and is broadcast with the kind permission of Pacific Press and is available in print and digital editions online. Continuing Chapter 7, Moi Yi. Disease and degradation were everywhere. Lying silently, suffering in their huts, were people of all ages. 
some with eroding tropical ulcers devouring their flesh and exposing their bones, providing torment for months and years. Yours, malaria, scabies, and badly infected injuries were rife. Although not a trained orderly, Moyi was able to give elementary treatment, which combined with his prayers afforded some relief. When one of the suffering ones died, his fellow tribesmen ate him. Outside the large hut were platforms on which were drying human bones, the remains of cannibal meals. When dry, these bones were distributed among relatives of the devoured dead and worshipped as symbols of the departed spirits. As the clans were all mutually suspicious, Moyi was prevented from travelling farther on the extensive plateau. He had hoped to visit other tribes, for it was apparent their condition was no better. But now he decided to return home for more help. As he departed, his hosts expressed their sorrow, but Moyi assured them he would return. Great was the joy of Moyi's family when he and his companion returned unharmed. But Moyi was restless. His heart had been stirred by what he had seen and heard. Never before had a missionary ventured into the stronghold of Satan. Now its defences had been penetrated and some of its prisoners freed. His mind was continually busy with thoughts of how to help his Karamui friends. When he reported his adventure to me, I decided to visit Karamui. Chapter 8. The Walkabout We laid plans for a six-weeks expedition, the government anxious that I engage in an anti-yours campaign, the public health department willingly supplying all required medicine. This meant giving every man, woman and child an injection of penicillin in oil, a process which would almost eradicate the disfiguring disease in the area. Then began the task of preparing in detail for the long walkabout. At Garoka, we gathered cases of medical supplies, food and camping equipment packed for the trail. We alerted 35 carriers to be ready at the staging point near Lufa, on the western slopes of Mount Michael, at the end of the vehicular road. Eric Weir, an Australian who had spent several years in New Guinea managing a gold mine, now a professional movie producer in Vancouver, Canada, wanted to shoot a film of the glaring need for missions in New Guinea. When he learned of our walkabout, he contacted me. Since he was a close friend with a venturesome spirit and a sparkling sense of humour, I was delighted to have him join our expedition. He made arrangements with the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists to sponsor his film, Cry of New Guinea. We loaded the Land Rover with medical equipment and supplies, food, clothing, utensils, several 50-pound bags of rice and salt, buckets, tomahawks, bush knives, and a lightweight tarp that served as an open-ended tent. Leaving our mission home, we drove across the long, flimsy, swaying, cable-suspended Kamai Bridge. We afterward learned how fortunate we were, for a few days later the bridge collapsed under another Land Rover, drowning both driver and passenger. Passing Lufa, the last government patrol post, we were increasingly impeded by landslides and falling rocks until finally, lumbering over the last obstacle, we parked the vehicle on a ridge facing the seemingly endless mountains over which we were to trudge. Met here in the afternoon by the impatient carriers at an elevation of 7,000 feet on the mountainside as the cold rain was about to fall, I asked Eric, what are your thoughts? 
to start now or tomorrow. I'm easy, he said, but the mountains will be no smaller tomorrow, so let's get on our way now. So we unloaded the cargo and distributed among the carriers, some preferring to carry their loads on poles tied with vines cut from the bush beside the road. With a loud whoop from the line, we set off. I could not share the exuberance of the carriers, as the trail followed along the steep mountainside, down a deep gorge and up the other side with rain above and the seemingly eternal mud below. As waterproof coats would be too uncomfortable and clammy for such exertion, we walked soaking wet. Under these conditions, even the carrier's enthusiasm soon waned, but after three hours of endurance, we crawled out of a gully and into Magino village. That afternoon, we heated mushroom soup and pre-cooked rice with raisins, a feast. A fruitcake my wife had packed enlarged Eric's eyes, despite my grave pronouncement that this luxury was reserved for the furthermost point of our journey. However, after only three days on the rugged trail, the cake had broken into several pieces, making sample bites temptingly easy. Thus, much to Eric's glee, barely a crumb survived the first week. The first three days on a walkabout seemed the hardest, as one continually contrasts his discomfort with home life. After the third day, one accepts the inevitable and establishes a routine. Rising soon after daybreak, we pack the beds, wash, shave, eat, and then worship with the carriers. At this simple service, we fasimai, fasten or close eyes. Then we commend ourselves to our watchful Father, who alone knows all the dangers. Mountain mist swirled around us as we started out the first morning. Before us, the mysterious Tua River Gorge, rarely traversed by white men, and the territory of the treacherous Karamui tree-dwellers. Early in the afternoon, we arrived at Hegatura village, site of a small Adventist mission station, and were welcomed with enthusiasm. There we gave penicillin injections to all the people, more than a hundred, the beginning of the anti-yours campaign, which eventually numbered nearly 4,000 injections, and Eric began shooting film. That evening the village crowded into the small, mud-surrounded church, and there we enjoyed worship with these simple jungle people. They liked to sing of Jesus' love and hear the promises of the heavenly home prepared for the faithful. We learned that 15 had already renounced heathenism and were preparing for baptism. By the end of the week, we reached Ugogubi village, an untidy line of round huts strung along a ridge. Eric and I settled into the one reserved for visitors, close to the carrier's huts. Our beds consisted of spring steel frames covered with light canvas. We talked ourselves to sleep, reviewing the past day and making plans for the next. Shortly after three o'clock in the morning, the still mountain air was shattered by yells which chilled my spine. Help, help, quick time. What name something? What is the trouble? I yelled back. No reply. Quick, Eric, there's trouble, I said. We both sat upright, hearing frantic beatings against the walls of the hut just behind ours. Night attack, I thought. Scrambling for my flashlight, I knocked it farther away. When I found it, we shouted, Me fella come, and dashed round to the back of our hut. People poured out of their huts. Four men were talking hysterically. In the confusion, no one could tell us in pidgin English what had happened. 
Finally, we learned that the four men had been sleeping in one small hut because of the cold and had awakened and stirred the smouldering embers. While they talked, the low door was slowly pushed open and in crept a tambaran, a spirit. Before their terrified gazed, it grabbed a stick from the fire, waved it in the air and began to dance furiously, beating them with the burning stick. Fearing the tambaran more than the fire stick, they tried to break through the flimsy walls, making the beating on the walls we had heard. When I shouted, the tambaran vanished, and the men rushed outside. What they had seen had filled them with abject terror. Their worship of the spirits of departed ancestors makes them susceptible to spiritistic visitations. They interpreted this one to mean that someone had died in their village that night, but later investigation proved this fear false. I believe this manifestation was an attempt by the enemy of souls to intimidate the carriers so that we could not continue. The ire of the serpent had been displayed, and we saw firsthand that he would not yield his victims without a fight. How close he actually did come to wrecking our walkabout, we soon learned. Chapter 9 Among the Cannibals Mile after weary mile we struggled up and over mountains and waded across the flooded torrents in the valleys, stopping at each village to open the medical case. Always after administering treatments, we unrolled the pictures and spoke to a receptive audience. People suffered silently with such diseases as pneumonia, eventually to die, when a series of injections would have saved them. Others were tormented with malaria, head and bones aching, the whole body burning, when tablets would have driven the malady out. At one village alone, five had recently died. Tropical ulcers were perhaps the greatest cause of suffering. Untreated, these painful sores sometimes eat through skin, muscle and blood vessels to attack the bone and persist for years. On the leg of one woman was a 12-inch ulcer and its accompanying scar. In this condition, she had given birth to a child now four years old. What would the critics of missions say if they could see the unrelieved suffering as we have seen it in these remote parts of New Guinea? Would they themselves be able to turn away from the eyes of a mother as she brings her dying child and begs for help? The village of Mani was pleasantly situated on a spur pointing toward the deep Tua River Gorge below with its mantle of dark purple. The people gave us an animated reception. For several hours, Rabibi, the orderly, and I gave injections and many other treatments. These seemed particularly happy people, appreciative and anxious to learn all we could teach them about the big fella papa on top. Before we left in the morning, the chief, in an eloquent appeal for a missionary, began waving his arm around and saying we could select any ground, even the choicest garden, for a mission site. We had helped his people in their suffering, and he wanted his people to learn more about our God of love. A few days previously, a young man had died. The villagers placed his body, covered with tree bark, on a high platform next to a hut still inhabited. His most valued treasure... A red loincloth was placed on the platform with the body to rot. As we trekked deeper into the mysterious hinterland and approached the land of the Karamui cannibals, our carriers became restive. When we reached the last village before crossing the mountains into the Karamui country, the local chief, meaning to be helpful, 
told the carriers it was suicidal to venture any further. If we were not all killed by arrows, he said, we would be poisoned. Most of the carriers were not Christians and were susceptible to the chief's apprehensions, especially after the Tamboran experience a few nights earlier. Our dependable guide, Moses, advised us against continuing into Karamui, requesting Eric to influence me not to proceed. We both smiled, realizing his efforts could have been as much for his own safety as ours, but still grateful for his consideration. While he knew the cruelty of the unconverted heathen, we knew the power of our protector. Departing the following morning in a depressing but short-lived rain, we found the upward route very steep, with no true trail. Slimy leeches attached themselves to us as we passed, clinging tenaciously, sucking our blood as we continually dragged them from our limbs. The mountain mists dispersed just after midday, the jungle parted, and the Karamui Plateau, the dreaded land, came into view. Dominated by a camel-humped mountain, with its mantle of thick jungle bordered by a loop of the Tua River, this large plateau looked deceptively flat. To be continued. Tune in again next week for the next episode of Banish the Night, written by Len Barnard and read by Clive Nash. Let's listen to William Ackland as he shares a psalm from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Gift. The sons of Korah have written again in Psalm 46, and it is for the choir director. God is our refuge and conquers the nations. God is our safe haven. He gives us strength. He is always there for us in our troubles. Therefore, we will not be afraid even though the earth is taken away or the mountains fall into the sea. Though the sea is wild and roaring and the mountains quake with its thundering. There is a river whose life-giving water brings rejoicing to the city of God, even to the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is in that place, so it cannot be shaken. God will help that city at the turning of the morning. The nations raged and the kingdoms of this world were scattered. God spoke in thunder tones and the earth melted away. But the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our hiding place. Come and see what God has done. He has wreaked havoc over all the earth. He can stop a raging battle in any place, breaking the bow and splitting the spear into pieces. He burns the chariots in unquenchable fire. Be still and be in awe, for I am God. I will be raised to the heights among the nations and be lifted up throughout the earth. The Lord of hosts is with his people. The God of Jacob is our hiding place.